Welcome to the latest ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and as the year draws to a close and the players either put their feet up somewhere warm and sunny or get back into the lung-busting job of pre-season training blocks, this week we start to look back on the story of 2018 by hearing again some of our favourite interviews from the first half of the season, from the American hard courts of the tennis mecca that is Indian Wells, through to the sunburnt clay and imperial majesty of Rome. We start in Indian Wells, where Sasha Zverev was bidding to follow on from his breakthrough year in 2017. Key to building the Zverev game has been building the Zverev body, and the responsibility for that job has fallen squarely on the shoulders of Jez Green. Formerly conditioning coach for Thomas Burdich and more recently Andy Murray, Green spoke with Jill Krabus at the Indian Wells Tennis Garden and shared some of the secrets to his success. It's down to body type and, and personality as much as anything and also game style. So obviously Sasha is destined to be a pretty powerful, attacking, hopefully all-court kind of player. Uh, but he's six foot six at 15, 16 years old. That means coordination, movement, uh, protecting the body from injury is, is your number one concern. And probably stability and injury prevention at that height is, a, is, is really difficult to do. Uh, Andy was much more robust, especially through the legs from young. He had like soccer style legs and he had much more of a running defensive style game, which, which served him very well. Um, so, yeah, then that you have to put much, much more stock in, in Andy's defensive kind of movement skills and, and strength, especially through the legs. So it's, it's a completely different process, it can be different games. But the basic structure around the program, to be fair, is not that different because they're tennis players. So the shapes they have to, to get good at are actually quite similar for Andy or Sasha. But the way you get to these shapes is, is, a, is a different process. Also, Andy, I, I, I gave myself three years to build him uh, from 17, from 18 years old. Or? Yeah, from okay. like 17, 18 years okay. old. I thought it would take me till 21 to getting up to kind of Grand Slam winning kind of body. And I gave myself five with Sasha. So I gave myself two extra years to build him and not to, and not to rush. So that, that's interesting. That's actually a really good teaching skill for the younger ones that are coming up. Because you know, I've worked with a few younger players that are trying to transition from juniors to pros. And it, their mentality is all about wanting to have things happen quickly. Yes. You know, they want to see the success quickly. And it's interesting to hear you say that you right away you gave the players a few years mm. for that long of a program. Do you feel like that's a much more, obviously way to go about it uh, it's a progression yeah it, it, for me I've been very fortunate I've had incredible raw material and to have someone young who can then go on to win grand slams and to actually be involved in that process was a, a huge privilege but it also shows you what the standards are so if you have a young player who who's really talented and got a good team but they want to win slams then this is a very different conversation to have. And, and that's where you have to look long-term. Very few people I've even seen are ready to win slams at 16, 17 years old, physically or mentally or anything. So if you've got a young player at 16, 17, and their aspiration and their ambitions to win slams, 
then it's a very different process through and you've got to say think of it in terms of years you know and not it can't be months there's no chance if you have a player who's who's good but they're probably going to be you know a good pro up at like 80 to 120 in the world then maybe you can speak a little bit more shorter term because you're not going to have need the body that is exceptional but as we know in the in the female male game the the, the, the athletes or wind slams are nothing short of exceptional and if you want to be exceptional that that that's to speak in terms of years that is for sure can you give us a little bit of example of maybe a structure that you might be giving Sasha for example notice I've watched in the last few years I've noticed he used to be a lot um, slimmer and mm. he looks a lot stronger now mm-hmm. a lot more a lot more balanced and sturdy can you give us an example of specific things that you've worked with him on in the last couple of years yeah yeah I can do the whole almost the whole program is quite easy cool. really. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I'm gonna get at it's, it <laughs> um, obviously he we started we started when he was 16 and about 73 kilos and and interestingly he he hit 90 kilos about two weeks ago that was my goal so for the you, end you do of the year a lot of weighing in and yes. stuff. okay oh yeah all right. yeah yeah, I'm, I'm and I'm into central. I aim for four kilos of muscle a year, so I want the body fat to stay the same between eight and ten, something like that, uh, give or take. And I wanted four kilos of pure muscle a year, so now he's pretty much hit that. So he's put on, you know, 17 kilos of muscle in four years now. So which is so he, now he's 90. That's now the kind of end product. But we started year one is is postural, really easy. No all body weight control work, all postural, preparing the joints, injury prevention very basic endurance work and basic lifting technique work but no load so lifting technique constantly getting his shoulders in the right yeah. position hips and all the, all the basic squats i believe in squatting and deadlifting but but perfect i'm not interested in average it's perfect so you make the joints line up you stabilize the joints and then you put load through the joints when you're happy that they're stable year two i could start to add load to these these shapes these lifts that he did and actually amazingly he progressed faster than i thought so even by the end of year two, he was lifting more weights with control than I thought he was. Year three has been real base strength, like real strength, like you see in the gyms, like you know, hypertrophy, trying to put weight on, significant lifting of squatting and deadlifting. And now we're in year five, I'm looking towards speed because I'm happy that he lifts way more than people think. I mean, he can pick up like 155 kilos off the floor on a deadlift, which if you know deadlifting is pretty significant. Yeah, no, yeah. It's six foot six. That is very That's significant. And young. Yeah. So his ability to shift weight with good control is quite high now because he started young. So now I can look at speed. So it's literally yeah, postural control, stability, early stage weights, early stage endurance, moving on to real hypertrophy and now looking at speed. That, that's his five-year program. So, so when you get to the point where you're working on speed, mm. you're not completely not doing the strength no. and all the stuff. It's basically incorporating everything. Stays. Everything. Yeah, yeah well, everything stays. Whatever you do has to stay. He does, he does at least an hour of stability posture work every single day. Every single day. That's what I do in the mornings, every day. Because he's still six foot six and he's still young. <laughs> so the joints still move. When he plays a tough match, his joints go out of line. And Hugo, the physio, will line him back up and look at mobility and then I'll put stability back through the joints. This, this is kind of like a, a lifestyle continuous thing. What you tend to do then is block out times of the year when you lift more and do more really heavy, like nasty speed endurance kind of work, the real heavy interval work and the real heavy lifting. Now now you block it in specifically in times of the year, maybe twice a year. You do real big blocks of it, like three, four weeks at a time. And because he's so versed in it, that those blocks are easy enough to maintain his strength through the year. That's it. So even here at the tournament when he's competing, mm-hmm. do you still do the hour every morning? Yes. Obviously 
How is the tournament different from, say, like when you're just practicing? Yeah, you deload them, and and obviously he this is a Masters. He he's he's done so well to get his ranking up. He's now playing the biggest tournaments every week. So. Uh, what I can't do now is take his energy the week before a tournament by lifting him or running him. That that doesn't make sense. He needs all his energy for the matches. So in tournaments now, I concern myself with with his stability, his alignment, and movement. Uh, I'm big big one on specific movement. So so now I can work on specific movement steps that he uses: return of serve or attacking the back and going forward. And, and I do purely movement and balance kind of work leading up to a tournament to remind the body of what what, what movement shapes he needs from someone who's been around the tour for so long, just seeing the progression, the way the sport has gotten stronger and stronger, has that influenced how you've changed your program or your program, I know you, you trust it and you believe in it so much that it just works, but have there any been tweaks here and there to, to I guess, balance it out for where the game's going? Yeah, I, I think certain things have really been heightened. I think the I've learned a lot on, on, on postural control and stability kind of work. The movement stuff, I think, is solid, and strength work is strength work. I think everyone has to do it. I think that it's almost the two ends of the spectrum that, that has been really noticeable. One is the real, real basic postural control work that the, that the players can do these days, and the other side of it is probably how long these guys can play a match and still be sprinting at the end. I think it's, it, it's, it's remarkable. I train these guys, I mean, disbelief on what Sash or Andy could do they played four and a half hours and they're still sprinting for drop shots. I mean, it, it's it's incredible, whatever it is, speed endurance that they have that, that is has to be respected and realize that it's only going to get more, you know, uh, and these guys can last. And then they have one day off and they come back and do it again. It's like this is incredible feats of endurance and, and, and control of the body, which is, it's, which yeah, I've definitely upped my standard awareness that, okay, what I thought was good five, ten years ago is just now become normal normals now we've got to come exceptional and that's that, that's what I've seen I mean that's what amazes me is because you, you're at the point where you know you just how can even get better yeah how, it, but it does and you know it will I say this every day I said I don't I don't know how what these guys are going to be doing in 10 years time it freaks right. me out a little bit because I know what they're they probably do be now. a part of it yeah maybe yeah yeah and I'll have to learn again I'll have to go up another level of, of, of thinking about it because I think yeah you're right I think the basic standards will kind of stay but somebody will come with something that's even more exceptional. And, and it's that area will have to be looked at and focused. And you see what they're doing? This is, this is changing the, the, the rules again a little bit. I think the basic structure will stay, because I've not seen the basic stuff still works. The real basic stuff will work forever, but it's just the extremes will change. Conditioning coach Jez Green talking with Jill Krabus and while Zverev didn't go deep in Indian Wells, Juan Martín del Potro certainly did, eventually beating Roger Federer to win his first Masters 1000 title and get his season off to a flyer. Another man often running quicker than ever before in 2018 was Britain's Kyle Edmund, a semi-finalist at the Australian Open and already making huge strides under a new head coach, Freddie Rosengren. Always ready and available to share his thoughts, Freddie spoke with me in the Players' Garden in Miami about Kyle's rapid rise. It was really nice to see him grow every day, uh, also as a person, you know, be, between everything, because life changed. The tennis life changed when you go deep into a Grand Slam tournament. Just to go back on something you said there, given how well he's done since then, the, the Kevin Anderson win was actually 
massive. It unlocked so much from two sets to one down. As a coach, you must have been hugely proud with that performance. Yeah, it was so many things uh, I'd be proud of, uh, I have to say, because it had nothing to do with forehand and backhand. I told you in Paris how much we, you know, me and, and also Mark Hilton, who's working with him, how much we we talking to him about how to to be on court with body language with with the mental game you have to show your opponent you know like uh, you are on uh, like this this is so many things around the the game who is so important and and it, that was that was the main thing for me i said i said after two games against dimitro in the quarterfinal the way kyle went into the court when they they announced his name with the head up chest out looking around waving with his hand to see that because we have been talking about this enjoy the moment you don't have to have any excuses being in quarterfinal in Grand Slam so that was so good for me to see so I said doesn't matter what happened today he's a winner and these things for coaches is of course uh, I know how important it is for a, for a guy like Kyle of course but he has to do it he has to ex- do these things we're talking about and that's why I'm so happy when when uh, you know they listen they understand this is important and uh, they do it and what then of course is never any I mean you can't expect the win just because you do these things but but uh, then it goes well and then of course it's easier to say yeah that's because of that and that you know like so I uh, was a very very good moment. And you're obviously not surprised now by Carl because you've been with him for a little while. But if I told you on January the 1st that, you know, come, I don't know, the Indian Wells in Miami, he'd already be a Grand Slam semi-finalist, what would you have told me? Uh, uh, I I mean, I always have a lot of confidence in the play I started with. So I I, I tell you a secret. When I saw Kyle last year, we started and we, we practiced and I saw his strength. I actually put... Maybe stupid, you know. I gave him the schedule for this year. We agree with the schedule tournaments. It's already changed a little bit. But I put London there. I put London there. And maybe that is maybe wrong. That can be a lot of pressure. But at also it can it can be for a player like my coach believe in me, you know. And I really, really believe in Kyle. And, and that is also my job to to make him understand how gifted he is, how good he is. So, uh, this is so much about that. Everybody can play. So, it's it's about uh, get the play in the right mindset when he enters the court. You, you say that, and I know so much of it is the mental side of things, but there must have been game you know, technical areas that you've worked on. Kyle was very much held up as a, a massive serve and a massive forehand before, and, and that's how players used to play him. Has, where have the improvements come? Uh, I, don't, I don't agree with you with his massive serve, actually, because the serve has been a big issue. OK, and forehand. We, forehand, it's unbelievable. And, and in Melbourne, there was nobody, I mean, was even close to him hitting as much winner as, as Kyle did. But the serve, he, he changed it before Christmas, December he was working on the new technique and that was a big surprise that the outcome was so good so early that was the biggest surprise for me that he was up so the, 
semi-final, of course, great, but you have to go on. This is, this is not the end of the story. But to see him being one of the best hitting most aces the first month in, on the ATP Tour, that was for me when I, when I <laughs> looked at the ATP Weekly and I saw aces numbers, Kyle Edmund. Uh, I don't know if it was the sixth place or whatever, but that makes a, that makes a coach uh, so happy because you know you have been putting in hours, you know. So uh, that that was that was great, and and uh, as I said before, the, the the mental is so important, and that's what maybe you know the experience came come in a little bit. You know, I have been working with eight players better ranked than, than Kyle, so. I've been through so much. Uh, I could tell I could tell uh, Kyle every evening in in Melbourne what's going to happen tomorrow with each win. This going to happen. This going to happen. <laughs> to take you from A to B, we'll take you instead of one minute, we'll take you 32 minutes because everybody <laughs> wants to talk to you. That's just the good side. So enjoy, enjoy. I don't care if you are late to practice five minutes. Enjoy. You know, you have to understand. You do, do this is because you have a success, and that is so important. Also, you're in the right to to enjoy. I think. And what about you, Freddie? <laughs> when we spoke, uh, when we spoke in Paris, you, you were a few weeks really back on tour after a, a while away. Um, how are you enjoying it? Are you are you treating it differently? Are you, are you changed the way? Are you a changed man from when you were a coach before, with you know Magnus and Jonas and everyone, or is it the same old, same old, same old? I, I mean, I have to say, I enjoy I enjoy my job so much. Uh, on court m- match situations, this uh, at the same time is the same as when I, I quit because of. You know, so much time spending without doing anything, so much time in the room by myself. That you know, when family's back home, life goes. Life goes very quick. You ask yourself, is this what I'm gonna do until I'm six feet under? You know, like. So, this is a little bit the same uh, because in my age, you you want to do stuff. You have a house. You have a wife. You you know. And you have, you want to do these things you did before you get kids, before again, and that is time for that now. And I'm still travel a lot, so we will, we will see. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I like this. At the same time, it, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of being being alone. Uh, this week I have my son here. It's very very nice. Uh, so uh, we, we will see. But as as soon as I come to the tournament, as soon as I go on court uh, with Kyle working, I enjoy it very, very much, very, very much. But uh, yeah, then maybe I'm, 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 you know, you're getting so emotional and so you're so into it, so into it, and that is how I am. Sometimes it would be nice to be a little bit, you know, maybe the, the I don't. I don't care attitude, you know, but I can't work like that. I'm not that, that I, I care sometimes too much. And that is sometimes tough to, to deal with for myself, you know. So, uh, but I love my job, of course. And I'm very, it's a, it's a huge privilege to, to do this still. 30 years, you say, <laughs> since you were here at the start of your career. Who, talk to me about that first Miami. 
1988, yeah. I, I, I was coaching Jan Gunnarsson. And uh, I just came back from six years in Germany, having my tennis school there as a coach. And my old friend Gunnarsson, two years younger than me, started with him a little bit in Vexjö back home. And he asked me suddenly, do you want to come to, with me to, to um, uh, Indian Wells? He had, a, he had an injury, so I, I helped him back home. And I said, in Indian Wells, it was for me like going to the moon. <laughs> I never been to America. I just, you know, read and heard about Indian Wells and these tournaments. Uh, you know, it was for me like, it, it, it's unreal. I was 20, 28 years old and, and then he had still problem with his knee. So we, we actually started here, Kiwis game. And that was the year Mats Vilando won. He won three Grand Slams plus uh, Kibis Kane. At that time, it was the fifth biggest tournament. 128 draws, five sets from the first round. And uh, this is 30 years. And when I checked in last Friday, same hotel, I was laughing. I said, this is the circle, is, this is done. 30 years. Uh, yeah, again, it's a privilege, you know. It's... Uh, so uh, it's a little bit sad that it's last year here and, and uh, yeah, but changes is also nice. So that will, will for 100% it will be good in a new, uh, new, new venue and, and uh, so I love this town. I've been here so many times and I have good memories and one of my worst memories in my life here from this tournament actually. Am I allowed to ask you about that? Yeah, of course you are. So many years ago, no worries. We, we, my wife was pregnant back home. Uh, this was March, and she was supposed she was due for June. And uh, suddenly, I call her because here was nothing, you know, no stadium, nothing. So you went to a phone. Uh, how do you say this? Automatic phones everywhere. Yeah. So I called back home, and my my sister answered. And so my, my wife was already in the hospital giving a birth. And uh, we got a daughter, Julia. She lived three days. I wasn't there uh, the birth, but I came home before she died. So I was there when she died. So I was holding her in my hands when she, she died. And this is, of course, things in life makes you also stronger, you know. So... Uh, uh, actually, when people ask me how many kids do you have, and I say, of course, I have three, but I have two boys alive, and I have a daughter. She's not living, so she's not alive. So that's it. That is life, and uh, of course, that was a hard time. But that happened. I remember I was sitting outside in the Conti uh, in the evening before I catch the flight back home. Uh, tough, tough, but you have to handle these things in life. Freddie, it's a huge pleasure always to talk with you. You're always so honest and open. Um, I hope we'll get to talk with you again uh, in the next week, fortnight, months <laughs> ahead, in London perhaps, by the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah, thank you too. It's, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to ATP Tennis Radio. Freddie Rosengren, one of the nicest men on tour, without doubt. And as Freddie said, 2018, the last year in Key Biscayne, before the Miami tournament finds a new home downtown from 2019. And the final winner at the historic old venue, fittingly an American, John Isner, seeing off a resurgent Sasha Zverev to take his first Masters and round off the early season hardcourt swing.
The next time those two players would line up at the same event would be on the European clay, starting with the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters, where I was fortunate enough to speak with none other than Boris Becker on the day that he was presented with his International Tennis Hall of Fame commemorative ring, a day of proud reflection for Boris. Tennis is my life. Uh, I've, I've been spending the last 35 years doing nothing else but being involved in tennis in one way or another. And to uh, receive this, this um, very honourable uh, award is, is very important to me. And do you remember how you felt when you were told back in 2003 that you'd be inducted? How did that feel at the time? Well, it's a big deal. I'm a, I'm a sports uh, a fanatic and I, I watch um, you know, pretty much everything in sports. And, and uh, to, I know um, the Hall of Fame for sports, uh, whether that's football or basketball uh, or tennis. And uh, when I was inducted in 2003, uh, in fact, by Jon Tiriak, I asked him to... Um, to do the honours. It was a very important day in my life. You won 49 titles um, and you came oh so close here in Monte Carlo, of course. Uh, Talk to me about your memories of playing here. Yeah, it wasn't meant to be uh, uh, to win a a major Grand uh, Cleco tournament. Um, I was three times in the final here. I was in the final of Rome and the final of Hamburg. Um, uh, Even had uh, match points here against uh, Thomas Muster back in the day. Uh, uh, it used to be my home. I love Monaco. I love the tournament. I, I come back every year. Uh, but I would have loved to be on the winner's side. Grass, of course, is where it all started um, for you. Your first title at Queen's, I think, in 1985. Talk to me about your memories of that one. Yeah, I was 17 years old. You know, I was already on the tour for about a year, year and a half. You know. um, uh, in those days, uh, being a teenager uh, uh, wasn't that unusual playing successful tennis uh, uh, nowadays uh, uh, it would have been a bigger deal because everybody seems to be a bit older um, but back in, in the mid 80s I was surrounded by teenagers they were successful uh, and yeah and my, my breakthrough came on grass came in Queens uh, uh, in June of 1985 and uh, you know the rest is history and a few weeks later of course was when the the world really learnt about Boris Becker Wimbledon your memories of that yeah, it changed my life uh, quite dramatically. I called the 7th of July 1985 my sec- second birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and the, the, um, the private life um, disappeared and the public persona arrived. Uh, uh, it's been unbelievable. You know, it opened me doors that I never knew existed. Um, uh, uh, it changed uh, my, my life for the better. Obviously, there are some downsides being that famous and that popular and that successful. But the good uh, 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 very much outweigh the bad. Match point, that first Wimbledon match point. Can you remember how you were feeling, what you were thinking? Yeah, it's been a couple of years ago, so so let me let me think about it a little bit. But uh, it was against Kevin Curran. Uh, uh, in my very first match point, I actually hit a double fault because I couldn't uh, keep my concentration. Thankfully, the second one was good. And then, yeah, everything happened uh, just like in a blur. Uh, 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 you know, we shook hands. The president of Germany was in the royal box. You know, obviously the royal family was there as well, and I received the Wimbledon Trophy, and and it's been very different since. And people talk about rivals, but I guess at the age of 17, in in many ways, you were playing against your idols at that time. That's right. You know, I was uh, starting to be successful in the the era of uh, McEnroe, and and uh, Connors was still around. You know, Lendl 
was was uh, number one then in '86, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean those other players, uh, um, they were my heroes, they were my idols. Uh, uh, my my um, number one hero was Torbjorn Borg. Unfortunately, never played him. Uh, we did practice in Monte Carlo a few years later, uh, uh, and he was still very good on clay. Um, uh, yeah, I was by far the youngest, and it was a great time. A few years later, '89, you won your first U.S. Open. At the time, I believe you you described that as the best moment in your tennis life so far. Why was that so special? Well, I, I, I won again in Wimbledon in 1986. And, uh, uh, you know, those were my first two majors. And, you know, how the critics are. People quickly uh, label you as a grass court player and not the all-around player. So for me, winning on hard courts uh, was very important. And, and, you know, winning in New York, the US Open, uh, uh, was one of my absolute highlights, uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, whoever been on that center court back in the day is called Louis, Louis Armstrong. Now it's called obviously different. Uh, uh, it was it was you know by far the largest tennis crowd I ever played in front of, and and you know beating Ivan Lendl in the final who was number one then was was special. You you mentioned beating Ivan. You beat him a couple of years later at the Aussie Open to become the world number one for the first time. How important was that when you look back now in your career? Funny enough, uh, in the 80s, uh, uh, we still have two rankings. The players of today don't know that. So we had an ITF ranking where I was number one already in 1989. But on the ATP ranking, Lendl was always a couple of points ahead to Edberg were. So, you know, they play different tournaments and, and I don't want to claim nothing that I didn't, didn't receive. Um, so I felt that I had to play the computer better. Uh, so finally, in 1991, uh, beating Lendl in the final just gave me enough points to get over the hump, and I, I, I made that, yeah. Who did you consider to be your main rivals back then? I think uh, uh, Lendl and Edberg were the two uh, players that uh, uh, were always around, was always fighting for the number one spot, for Grand Slam victories, obviously. Uh, uh, Sampras came a few years after Agassi uh, as well. Uh, I think that was the group that I... I I fought with, um, of course, uh, mentioned Jim Courier, mentioned Michael Chang. All these players were part of the group that uh, on any given day could, uh, could win a Grand Slam. So it was, was exciting tennis times. As, as we said earlier, 49 titles in all, six Grand Slams. Is there one memory that stands out or perhaps a top three that, that uh, you think, wow, those, those were those I were mean, great I'm, days? I'm most known for my first Wimbledon title because that sort of put me on the map. Uh, for me personally, my second Wimbledon title was the most important one because it confirmed uh, my, my position in, in the world of tennis. And, and most importantly for myself, that I, after Wimbledon 2, I feel like I belong. Just changing tack slightly, since you retired, you've obviously worked in the media, you, uh, you've coached. Uh, do you enjoy coaching? Was that something you always thought you'd do? Well, I was involved with the German uh, Federation uh, right after I, I stopped in '99. We had a junior program for five years. Then I went into media. Uh, I did your job of, of interviewing people and, and commentating on sports, in particular in tennis. Uh, and then I, I coached Novak Djokovic for, for three years. Uh, and I'm back with the German Federation. I'm the head of the men's tennis uh, and, and, and very happy to do so. Yeah, you, you mentioned that you were with Novak. I think he won six of his 12 Grand Slams when you were with him. Um, obviously, he's gone through some, some tough times. And now Marion's back this week. That chemistry between a player and a coach, in your opinion, how important is that? Well, it certainly affected me to have the right coach uh, when I was a player. And I, I, I hope I, I affected the players that I've coached in a, in a good way. 
uh, and I'm happy that uh, Novak is together with Marianne because uh, those two uh, have a very special relationship uh, and are wishing nothing but success. You mentioned you're now with the German Tennis Federation, head of men's tennis. Uh, it's a very different German federation now to the first one you, you worked with. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I think uh, uh, we have a, a, a you know, great new president. We have a great team around him that, that understood that you know, uh, players of, of before may have an impact now in, in, in the men's or the women's tennis as well. And it's a great relationship. I enjoy working for them. And uh, so far we've been successful. Yeah, well, four of the top 16 or the last 16 here are Germans. It, it seems to be in rude health. Yeah, yeah, it's obviously um, um, fronted by uh, Sascha Zverev, who's only 20 years old, uh, and his brother uh, Misha. But then we have Stroff, we have Kohl Schreiber, we have uh, Kojovic. We have a couple of players that are really making a mark on the men's tour, and we're very proud of them. Yeah, no Grand Slam winner, though, since your last one not in 96. Sasha, the, the hope, the, the main hope for German tennis? I think he's the best of, of, of the ones that I mentioned. You know, he's got everything that, that it, you need to be Grand Slam champion, and I feel like it's a question of time for him. Do you see any of yourself in him? Uh, you know, he's coming up so young, of course. Maybe that is a resemblance, uh, uh, the age. Uh, other than that, we have similar, uh, very different uh, styles, different personalities, but we carry the same passport. Just finally, Boris, I want to ask you what you want your legacy from tennis to be and what, what does tennis mean to you? Well, tennis uh, is my life. Uh, uh, I think uh, it's, it's fair to say that I want others to, to make their judgment, not me. Um, you know, my nickname was Boom Boom and that was because of the power I had uh, uh, and, and probably that's something players remember about my game. Wonderful speaking with Boris Becker there in the sunshine of Monte Carlo, where there was a very familiar champion in Rafa Nadal, the Spaniard winning his 11th title there. And a couple of weeks later, the Spanish theme was still alive and well at the fourth Masters 1000 of the year, the second on clay, the Mutua Madrid Open. And that is where Nick McCarville spoke with a Spanish great of another era, Emilio Sanchez. If I have to, to go back and, and uh, judge myself as a player, I will, I will uh, keep uh, the competitiveness. I think, I think that uh, I never give up in a match. And I think that that is something that, that with my tools, with my shots and so, uh, make me be able to, to, to do some good results and, and, and to have a long career. And, but that, that, uh, that drive, that, you know, like, like that effort that I put and, and, and I think that that is something that, that I, will, I will always try to show my students and uh, try that, that them take that, that identity of, of, of a competitor, no? of a fighter, of a, of a hard work and, 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 and effort. No? And, and uh, that is something that came from, from my, my home, from my mom, that she was a very hard worker and she was always uh, being an example of how to, how to work hard and, 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 and um, now looking, looking back, because many years have passed, uh, if I see sometimes like someone shows me a video or, uh, or my kids, they, they just put a video or something. When I see that player that was there, that, that with, with, with those shots and everything, what, I, what I'm more proud of is that I never, I never, never give up. So that, that's something that, 
that for me I try to show my students and, and, and that they, it doesn't matter the winning or losing, what is important is to be there. If I can, just for a second, you reach world number one in doubles, three-time Grand Slam doubles winner, 1988 Olympic silver medalist. You helped captain the Davis Cup team here in Spain to a 2008 win. Um, over 15 years, you also reached the quarterfinals and singles at Roland Garros and US Open. I, could, I probably could go on and on, but did you feel at that point in your career like you were sort of leading Spain into a new wave along with Arancha, Conchita, Sergey, what he was able to do? And, and then there was a, another iteration of a generation, and now we've seen what Rafael Nadal has been able to do. We know Spanish tennis in the last 30 years has been healthy, but up to the late 80s, not necessarily. Well, we had a big push for Spanish tennis uh, with first initially with, with Santana and, and Orantes. Those guys, they really opened the doors. And then I think that, that after that, the tennis clubs start to build in Spain in the 70s and, and, and when Spain was a bit more open to, to, to sport. And then uh, the generations that I was, that, that, that I was they start to, to do some, some, some results. But if we go back in 88, when we won the silver medal in, in, um, in Korea, uh, Spain won three medals, one in sailing, one in arch, and one in tennis. So the, you can imagine the type of level that we had in a sport. So in, in those moments, was like, like there was a gap there for some years that Spain was doing so-so in tennis compared to before, like the Arantes and Nigueras that they were, Jimeno, they were really top. But then there was like a 10-year like a gap there. And then, and then we, we arrived and we opened, reopened the doors, which is easier reopened than open. So, so um, when you are there, you don't think that you are like a flag or you don't think on that. But what I think looking back is that, that um, we created like a, like a kind of like a way to do. So, so, so the, like a way to do means like on the, on the discipline, on the effort, on the, on, the, on, the, on the work, on the type of, 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 of development that we follow. And we had a, a, a way to train that was very specific with drills, with movement, going behind the ball. That if you see any Spanish player, they have that. So in some way, uh, and, and, and after that, every generation came after Sergi, and then the Correchas, and then the Moyas, and then the Ferreros, and then every generation was getting better and better until the arrival of, 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 of the best of the best, which is Rafa, which is the top of the top, which he has an incredible already career. No? But in some way, the, the, most of the people was working in, 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 with that with that um, type of, of way to do. And, 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 uh, but now we, we can look that back and say that we were that. But when you are there, you don't think, you are, I'm there here, the, yeah. the one who is opening up. You just try to do your best and to win them the more than we can and, and to, be, to compete. No? And, and um, in singles, I, 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 I was lucky enough to play with the best of the best because in my time, we had the three generations with the Mack and Rolandels, uh, Connors, Borgs playing at, the, at their, let's say, on their 30s. And then uh, our generation with uh, Edberg, Bielander, Becker, Muster, and then the generation after, very young arrivals with the Agassi, Courier, Sampras. So it, to, to be able to play with those three generations together was 
really tough. And uh, to be able to, to sometimes play with them um, and, and challenge them, it was, for me, was, was with not so much game because I didn't have big weapons to, to beat them. So, so it, was, it was something that is very, very, I'm very grateful and, and very honored, no? because there have been moments in, in the tennis when you don't have the three generations together where there is a kind of like lack of, of leadership. But at the time, I, I remember the year I played Masters in Germany, my group was Edberg, Sampras, and Agassi. So I went to the shop and buy a helmet, and <laughs> I went to play. <laughs> I went to play there because it was it was really 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 tough. So, but um, I, I think I, I am very fortunate uh, that to be in tennis. I, tennis is is my love and it's my life, and I am what I am thanks to tennis. So I I cannot be more more happy to 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 be born in this in this industry, and and I am a big big. Uh, um, promoter of that, and uh, I've always been doing something in, in, in the industry, and I will keep doing it. It's my job as a journalist to ask you about the past, to make you remember, but then also to reflect on what's, happen what's happening currently and looking ahead for Spanish tennis. I put this to Alex Carecha earlier this week about where are the next tennis stars. We have nine men in the main draw here at the Mutua Madrid Masters. Rafael Nadal obviously has, if you could reflect a little bit on what he's been able to do for Spanish tennis and also what Garbine Muguruza has achieved in her career. But now I think a lot of people are looking to the next generation or perhaps this generation proves to be sort of stretching their time on tour. Well, Spanish tennis is in, obviously in the best moment. I think um, we we are we have the number one, which is breaking records every week. So number of sets, number of matches, number of titles, eleven here, eleven there, and he's he's very competitive, and uh, and that gives you a perspective where where if he keeps that comp competitive state or that that idea the state, he's gonna be be there for, for, for a while. So for that for the Spanish tennis is amazing because having an a, a example like that is, you cannot get something like that. Um, on top of that, we have all the others which they are following him and, and I think he's, he's a leader on, 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 on the way to do also because many of the other players that they even they are oh, past the theories and so they are in their best shape than ever. Yesterday Feliciano played the incredible match and, and better, more, more precise, faster, stronger. So, so they, they, they keep improving and he's 37 years old. So, so I think this generation is by far the best that, we, that there has been and hopefully they will stretch it. The ones going after them, it's very difficult to be compared to this generation, so you cannot compare it. But they are there, so you have the, that they are very, very professional. And that way to do from Nadal, I think that Carreño and uh, Bautista, Ramos, these guys, they live for tennis, so they're gonna be there. They're very young, they're 26, 27, and so if they follow the path from the Nadals and Lopez and these, they're gonna be there for 10 years. So those guys, they're gonna, they, they, when, when these other guys, they are not there anymore, they are going to make much more noise, and after that, we the Spanish we normally are we are uh, more late arrivals, like like we arrive late, a bit later. We are Latin, so it takes us a bit longer to to, to mature, uh, but but um, and and um, we were so spoiled. 
because every generation for 25 years was better and better and better. So with the arrival of Nadal, there is not better to do. So, so we cannot improve that. So, so the, 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 um, the really young ones, they need, they need uh, to, to really improve so much in, in everything technical, tactical, physical, and mental to be able to arrive to that state that uh, is taking them a bit longer. But we have some good, good guys behind, not like before, like we used to have 15 or, 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 or even more players in the top 100. But I think we're going to always have good, good players because the, the, of the spirit of the, of the Spanish player, I think that's something that makes a difference. Because there is, if you realize when you watch the, the Spanish players, they never give up. Nine Spanish players started in the Madrid draw. One, Nadal, reached the last eight. But it was Zverev who took the title by beating Nadal's Victor Dominic team in the final. So the young German brimming with confidence for his title defence in Rome a week later. And he'd make it all the way to the final before succumbing to that man, Nadal. Along the way, there had been plenty for Italian tennis to cheer about. Fabio Fanini rising to the occasion and good wins too for Marco Cecchinato and Matteo Berrettini, all of which left the country's Davis Cup captain, Corrado Berrettuti, in a good mood when he spoke with me alongside the magnificent Pietrangeli court. For the first year, maybe we have a sign that the young player is coming, is coming up. You know, we have a, a very good player, young player, Berrettini has played very well, won the first round here, and uh, Sonego too. Uh, Cecchinato has played very well, uh, and uh, that is very good for the for the for the moment, Italian moment. Behind uh, the Fabio Fognini and uh, Seppi, it's very important for the Italian tennis. Yeah. It's been wonderful to see Fabio playing so well and enjoying the crowd here in Rome. Yeah, yeah, everybody are very, very happy to see Fognini, Fabio play so well. And it's very, and we are happy because it's coming from four weeks not very, very good. And uh, I start to play well uh, here in Rome, and that is uh, very good for everybody and uh, for all the public, uh, for uh, for us too, for me too. That uh, I'm the, 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 the Davis Cup captain, and um, we are happy because it's the first time in the quarterfinal. That is uh, is uh, great. He makes the game look so easy, doesn't he, Fabio? Yeah. I mean, he's so talented. Uh, look, look, look as when when you see Fabio to play. Look like the, the tennis is very simple, huh? but uh, it's because of Fabio. For Fabio, it's very easy to play when when he's in confidence. Because sometimes when you see uh, uh, Fabio play bad, it's really another 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 imagine another thing. But uh, fortunately here, uh, so we can see Fabio play well, and that's uh, is a is a great tennis. Really, it's great tennis. And you were the top-ranked Italian player yourself. Um, how difficult is it as an Italian player playing in Italy, where the fans are so passionate? Is there an expectation on the Italian players well, to, I, to have think, to perform? Yeah, I think that for, for every player is, a, is a something different. You know, you can play here in Rome and have a depression 
the pressure of the 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 the, the, the public uh, to play here to win everybody uh, come to, to to see you for to see you one and that is maybe be could be uh, something difficult but for uh, other player maybe like uh, Fabio he look in uh, good feel here he like to play in Rome with this public uh, and uh, in, and I think that's a for him is is a help he play much much better so it's a different for every player you you mentioned the young players coming through who've played well and in next gen last year in milan we saw quincy the young boy quincy yeah. which of the young players in italy are you most excited about well uh, i think that uh, quincy is one of this uh, uh, but we are uh, we have a lot. I tell you before, there is a uh, Berrettini and uh, Sonego, Quincy too. We have a Baldi. Baldi is playing. Uh, is play much. Is play very very good here, and uh, and then we have a Donati. Was not here, not play here, but is a very good uh, player. That's are the, the the best young uh, that I think they can they can uh, they can do something for the future. I wanted to also ask you about your own career. My career? Yeah, yeah, 1978, you, yeah. Uh, yeah, you made the semi-final at the French, you, yeah. you lost I think, 40 years ago, you don't look old enough. Ago. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, incredible. Yeah, you lost to Bjorn Borg that day. Yeah, yeah, what I do you remember of that I, match? I remember the semi-final, the results of the semi-final, <laughs> six, six love, six one, six love, a very, very hard match, yeah, and we play against Borg and uh, I remember that uh, before to to go in the in the court to play the semi-final, I talk with my coach and I say, I feel very well today, I want to try to win. <laughs> and I win one game, <laughs> only one. And I say to Bjorn, when we finish the match, I'm sorry for the, this game that I won. <laughs> what was your, when you look back now, obviously that's not one of your favourite memories. What is your favourite memory when you look back at your whole career now? Well, my favourite memory, maybe... The first semi-final in uh, Fleshy Meadows in uh, was a Forest Hills. I was very young, so uh, that was a great result. And I lost against uh, Jimmy Connors. And then maybe the Davis Cup, the final, Davis Cup final. We won against uh, the Chile in uh, Santiago. It was a for us. It was a great result because the team was a, a team of young player. Because uh, Panata was a twenty. 25, me, 23, so a young, young team. And you, I think you were still the last Italian man inside the world's top 10, is that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, is, yeah. is there a, yeah, is there a top 10 I, I, I player on the horizon? I'm, sure. I'm, I'm not checking, but I think... Uh, I well, think there was Flavia Panetta, of course, in yeah, the women's yeah, game, but yeah, I don't yeah, think there's been yeah, a man yeah, since. Last, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, so we need another, another top 10. We wait, we wait uh, for another top 10, and we hope that it's coming very, very... Uh, fast, uh, but uh, we have a Fabio that uh, uh, is close. Uh, it's very close to be uh, number ten. So we wait uh, for, uh, for for Fabio, and then uh, we wait for some younger in the future. Yeah, the way he's playing, who knows? Corrado, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Corrado. Better tutti there. Our thanks to Corrado and everyone else we heard from this week: to Jez Green, Freddie Rosengren, Boris Becker, and Emilio Sanchez. That leaves us just about at the halfway stage in our look back at the year. Still to come, we have more of our favourite interviews from Toronto, Cincinnati, Shanghai, Paris, Milan and, of course, London. 
Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Get in touch on Twitter at ATP Tennis Radio, or you could even go the old-fashioned route and simply tell a friend. I'm Seb Lozier. You're listening to ATP Tennis Radio. More from us next week. Join us then. <laughs>